So thanks for coming to the talk, everybody. And this talk is going to be about the importance of horse goddesses. God knows I've talked about horse goddesses nonstop for years, but here's a new angle. I think an important angle. Maybe this is what I've been trying to say all these years. So here we go. Some of you will know that I've put a lot of energy and a lot of words into telling people about Epona and Macha and Rhiannon. And they're a trio who are generally known as Celtic horse goddesses. When I decided to dedicate myself to Epona many years ago, I didn't really know what that label meant. In fact, I wasn't particularly interested in Rhiannon or Macha at the time. Uh, I was drawn to Epona because I love horses and at the time, horses were a big part of my daily life. Horses have, in my opinion, suffered a great injustice at the hands of humans. And to this day, most domestic horses endure a certain amount of suffering, often from very well-intentioned people who feel love and affection for the, those horses. And I've been one of those people. At this point in history, horses and humans are, are kind of stuck in a situation which seems impossible to rectify. Horses need a great deal more freedom and self-determination than they currently have. But it's not possible for us to give them that due to human activity. Our ecosystem and our land use patterns are pretty much at breaking point. We're not in a position to rewild horses, even if we were willing to. I'm talking about like the majority of the horses on the planet, not just a few. We're just not in a position to do that. There's not enough land that people aren't clamoring for, for what, for development, for running cattle, whatever. So it's becoming increasingly hard for the last groups of partially wild horses to even continue to be tolerated by humans who covet their territories. So now that I've cheered you up, <laughs> Let's try to think about what horse goddesses bring to this situation. So I'm guessing that most of you are somewhat familiar with these three goddesses, but I'll do a little bit of background in case you're not. Epona seems to have been around in Gaul before she was adopted by the Romans. And it's hard to fully understand how she was perceived or in which places she was known to Celtic-speaking people before Roman contact, because we don't really have records. The Romans and at least some Celts came to see her as a protector of horses, and perhaps as a protector of their riders, like the warriors who rode them. She was depicted as motherly, matronly, nurturing, kind of benevolent, uh, much more in the Roman stamp of women than the Celtic one. We don't have any uh, mythology for opponents, so it's impossible to be sure whether her story ran along similar lines to those of Macha and Rhiannon. And if it did, it's possible that the Romans wouldn't have understood those stories anyway. So the stories of Rhiannon and Macha are somewhat similar to one another even though on the surface they appear to be quite different. Rhiannon appears to Puich, the ruler of a Welsh kingdom called David. She rides into his world on a magic white horse, proposes marriage to him. And they have 
to overcome some challenges in order to finally tie the knot due to Prik's initial carelessness. But Rhiannon patches things up using her magical bag and her magical ability. After a few years, Rhiannon gives birth to a son, only for him to be stolen on the night of his birth. And Rhiannon is blamed for this, and she's punished and humiliated by being forced to offer to carry men on her back as if she's a horse. Now, the missing child that was stolen is mysteriously transported to another location, appearing on May Eve, moments after the birth of a foal. Rhiannon apparently knows nothing about this. The owner of the mare and foal is a man called Ternon. And Ternon finds the child and raises him before returning him to Prich and Rhiannon once he realizes where the child belongs. So the boy is later named Praderi. He arrives back in David riding the foal, which was born at the same time he was. The story is picked up much later in the third branch of the Mabinogi when Praderi is married and Rhiannon is now a widow. Praderi offers the kingdom of David and his mother's hand in marriage to his friend Manawuddin. Further adventures ensue during which Rhiannon and Praderi are imprisoned. And once again, Rhiannon undergoes humiliation by being treated as a horse. The story ends up having a happy ending when Manawuddin manages to unravel the magic behind all the misfortune that has happened to Rhiannon and David and Rhiannon and Praderi are rescued. So Mach's story begins when she turns up mysteriously at the house of a wealthy farmer called Krinyak. Without explanation, she simply begins acting as his wife, bringing him a lot of prosperity in the process. When the time of the annual Lunis affair approaches, Krinyak must attend along with the other nobles. Mach refuses to go with him because by this time she's heavily pregnant. She makes Krinyak swear that he won't mention her while they're at the fair. Of course, Krinyak does mention Maka in the worst possible way. He jeers at King Conover's horses, saying his wife could outrun them. And Conover's understandably offended and says that unless Krinyak's boast can be proven, he'll be put to death. So Maka is brought to the fair to run the race, but she's now in labor. She asks for mercy of the king and then of the men who are assembled to watch the race. And all she asks is that she's allowed to give birth in private before she runs. But their hearts are hard and they won't help her. So she runs the race, beating Conover's chariot team roundly. And as she crosses the finish line, she gives birth to twins. She then stands up and delivers her famous curse on the men of Ulster that when they're needed in battle, they will be unable to fight as they will experience the weakness of a woman in labor. So these stories are probably well known to you. And if they aren't, you can find fuller retellings of them in abundance. And maybe if you're stuck, try my YouTube channel. But what does the plight of horses today due to things like habitat destruction have to do with these goddesses and their stories? As Celtic polytheists, I think it's easy to get very bound up in our devotional practices, 
our study of texts, our love of the gods, and to overlook some of the messages in our myths, which should be informing our behavior. So horses are deeply connected to the concept of sovereignty. The stories of Maka and Friannon are essentially highly elaborate versions of what the Welsh, in particular, call fairy bride stories. Stripped down to their barest plot points, fairy bride stories go like this. A farmer meets a fairy woman. Her father places an obligation or taboo on this prospective husband. They generally get married, and then this has usually something to do with the mistreatment of the new wife. She mustn't be struck in anger, or very often she mustn't be struck with iron. So the husband usually breaks this taboo, usually by accident. It's a sin of carelessness rather than a sin of aggression. At this point, the wife leaves and goes back to the other world. Now, this wife, who's brought the farmer wealth, perhaps through furnishing him with magical livestock, often takes this wealth with her when she leaves him and goes back to the other world. But even if she doesn't, the couple are always represented as being truly in love. The farmer loses something precious because he loves her. Occasionally, she also takes the children from the marriage with her, but more often she just leaves them motherless. So this is the basic outline. But of course, each story has its differences and its embellishments, as you might know. Priyanon and Macha and the Welsh fairy brides all display aspects of sovereignty goddesses or sovereignty figures. Priyanon is strongly connected to the kingdom of David. She and David seem to be like a package. If you rule David, you must marry Friannon. If you marry Friannon, then you will be the king of David. Macha also shows aspects of sovereignty, although her husband's not the ruler of Ulster. She seems to come from the other world. She brings prosperity. Mistreating her causes her to put a significant curse on Ulster. Remember that David also undergoes a curse in the third branch due to Puig's carelessness, although it's resolved in the story. Macha also appears in several stories which are set earlier in Ireland's mythic history, in which she's obviously a sovereignty figure. She's at different times a king's wife or rules Ulster in her own right as a warrior queen. Uh, the high seat of Ulster is named for her, Alan Vacha. The, the fair at which she runs the fateful race is also at Alan Vaca. So returning to the fairy bride stories, it's worth noting, if you read some, or if you already know some, there's always a horse present at the moment when the husband breaks his taboo. He might be hitching a horse to a wagon or trying to catch or bridle a horse or helping his wife to mount a horse. In all these instances, he's attempting to control or make use of the horse. And although that isn't the stated taboo, the stated taboo is nothing to do with horses. Simultaneously to breaking that taboo, somebody's about to put a horse to use or bridle it. And again, the man isn't doing what we might think of as abusing the horse. He's doing something which is within the norms of his culture. And he too is essentially cursed 
for his actions. So although it's probably not clear to the storytellers from whom the Welsh fairy bride stories were recorded in the 18th, 19th century, there's a, a vestige there of a connection between horses and sovereignty. People tend to just tell stories the way they heard them, uh, but they don't always understand every nuance of why everything's in a story. But it's it's just, it's a constant in those stories. So if we remove horses from the equation for a moment, there's plenty of evidence, especially in Irish stories, that the creation of a king was seen as a marriage between the king and the land that he ruled. And that often a woman, usually an otherworldly one, acted as a kind of proxy or symbol of that marriage to the land. Either that or she had to approve it in some way. If we think about the basics of agriculture, it's easy to understand how the land is seen as feminine, receiving the seeds of arable crops, while the haltering and control of horses and cattle, the use of their milk and their offspring and their strength to feed people is analogous to some aspects of marriage as it's usually been practiced in history. And which animal is the most useful and the most fulfilling to control and has the most kind of intimate physical relationship with humans? Usually the horse, especially since it's useful not just for agriculture, but for the other things which make a king, warfare and controlling territory. So as we also know from many stories, if the king's behavior is poor, if he breaks taboos, he's careless with his word or he mistreats the land, the sovereignty goddess or his people, it's likely to bring about catastrophes like famine and pestilence. Happily for the kingdom, in most stories, it signals a change of king. He'll be brought down by the satire of his poets or through warfare, uh, through the introduction of a new hero or the goddess choosing a new consort. So sovereignty stories should be warning us about a great deal more than personal honor or personal sovereignty. The farmers in the fairy bride stories receive direct benefits from their wives. They're able to take more produce from the land because of her feminine magic than they could otherwise do. She often brings cattle who give an unusually high yield of creamy milk, for example. If you'd like to delve a little deeper into the topics in my videos, you might enjoy taking one of my online classes. You can find out more about them at the link which is on your screen now. You can also support my work on Ko-fi or by becoming a patron. You'll also find free content to read on my Patreon page and on my website. All the links are in the description. So the farmer's transgressions never appear to be on an enormous scale. They don't take up wife beating or horse beating or factory farming. Their behavior falls within the norms of their culture. They're only a, a bit careless, but their behavior brings about a cascade of disasters. It turns out that all the misfortune which befalls Friannon and David can be traced back to Puig's careless words at their wedding feast. Kunyuk's drunken boast results in a curse on Ulster. 
The husbands of the fairy brides are only doing ordinary tasks, tapping their wife in fun with their gloves or something. So why are the results catastrophic? Doesn't seem fair. I think it comes down to the need for respect for the land, for the natural world, for the supernatural world, for women and for horses and other livestock. It comes down to the need to be truly impeccable with your word and with your behavior toward all of these things. To constantly bear in mind the wonder and generosity of what we've been offered. To never take it for granted. And I know that that sounds like an impossibly tall order. Should we start with our everyday behavior, like what we eat, or are things so bad that we should be out there like super gluing ourselves to bulldozers? And I wish I had the answers. I know that I often fall very short of the ideal myself. I'm content to know that I'm doing better than a lot of other people, you know, how it goes. If you're taking some action, changing your diet, flying and driving less, not having kids, whatever, that's a great start. And I do think we should be taking other actions too, if we can, like protest and direct action probably have some effect, for example. Within the pagan community, I think we should also be speaking up in various ways. I've been shocked by the waste and disrespect for the environment at some pagan events I've been to. And I think we should speak out about that. And perhaps not just after the fact when it's too late and the shocking thing has shocked you. Perhaps we need to let organizers know that we won't be attending an event featuring throwaway cups and utensils or, you know, events with swag bags and things like that, which are often full of things made out of plastic. Things that we don't need to have, things you just bring home and eh, it's just another bit of clutter. As polytheists, I think we should be telling these stories in our communities, teaching their meaning, featuring them in our art or music or poetry, in our rituals. As pagans, we should be sending up prayers and offerings to our gods to intervene and to lend us their strength and wisdom as to how we can best intervene ourselves. As devotees of horse goddesses, as some of us are, we should see the world through the lens of restoring sovereignty to the world, to the ecosystem every day. As witches and priests, we should be calling for blessings and curses where appropriate. And there are appropriate curses. As horse lovers, I think we should be seeing the world through that lens of, does this make the world better or worse for horses? Because I believe a perfect world for horses is a world returned to ecological balance, a world which is not human-centered, a world in which the number of humans on this planet is in balance with other species. I know this is enormous. I don't know whether it's too late. I only know that it's the message that I hear frequently from the horse goddesses.